Welcome to Dear 20-something. I'm Erica, and I'm a 20-something social entrepreneur who is navigating the ups and downs of being in my 20s. Dear 20-something started because we wanted to create a space for ambitious and curious 20-somethings to connect with the successful woman they most look up to. While the 20s can be a time full of questions and doubts we process internally, Dear 20-something is a space where listeners can hear insights, ask questions, and ultimately get advice from the woman they most admire. Today on the show, I am so excited to be chatting with Erin Levine. Erin Levine is a California-based attorney specializing in family law since 2005. Erin was an undergraduate student at the University of California in Santa Barbara and attended law school at the University of San Francisco. After owning and managing the Levine Family Law Group in Oakland, California for over a decade, Erin became disillusioned with the broken, inefficient, and expensive system and set out to change it. In 2018, she founded the online platform Hello Divorce. Hello Divorce was created to help people navigate the divorce process on their terms, quickly and affordably, with less stress. Its services are currently available in California, Utah, Colorado, and Texas, with plans for immediate expansion into additional states in 2021. As founder and CEO of Hello Divorce, Erin's goal is to provide everyone who wants a divorce access to easy, affordable, and ethical legal assistance. Her passion and approach to family law has been guided by her own experience with the legal system. As a child, Erin was the victim of violence, and as a teen, she was the plaintiff in a civil action and a witness in a criminal action. It was stressful, intimidating, and confusing, and Erin was determined to not let anyone else feel that way. Her goal is to leave clients ready to embark on a fresh start and feel empowered. Erin has been recognized by James I. Keene Memorial Award for Excellence in e-lawyering, Women Founders Network, American Bar Association, Women in Legal Tech, and the Duke Law and Tech Accelerator's grand prize winner, to name a few. And she's been featured in publications such as Vice, TechCrunch, Entertainment Tonight, Forbes, Entrepreneur, and Women's Health. I can't wait to chat with her and share her story with you now on Dear 20-something. Please welcome Erin Levine. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I was just listening to your recent episodes with Ali and Sabina, and I was so inspired by them. I'm excited to be here and chat with you today. Awesome. Thanks for listening. I so appreciate it. They're amazing. We've done a string of awesome entrepreneurs recently, and we're excited to add you to that mix. Uh, thank you. So we like to start every show with a fun question, which you may have heard from those episodes. So what is something new you learned this week? It could be a new business you're excited about, maybe something fascinating you learned about the legal space that's evolving, maybe a conversation you had, a book you're reading. But what is something new that you learned in the past week? I think really this week was less about learning something new and more about being reminded of the things I had learned before but forgot about, right? Because everything is such a work in progress and we're constantly taking new information in and reapplying it in different ways. And so this week, it was about reclaiming my vulnerability and reminding myself that it's not being weak, like having the tough conversations with my family, with my team, with my kids is really not doing anything that is weak. It's not that you're being taken advantage of. It's that you're showing in a lot of ways your superpower, your ability to come out and live authentically and share that your vision with all the people who love you most. And I think it's especially challenging around the holidays. There's so much of pressure to people please, to be super, super busy and try to balance a million different things. So being reminded again of that need to reclaim your vulnerability and think of it more as a strength instead of a weakness was a great reminder this week. I love that. And I, to your point, like the holidays bring that out. I also think the end of the year where you're kind of like, oh my gosh, what did I get done this year? I'm looking into next year. It's like a very reflective time, I think, December. And so that would make sense that a lot of things are coming up and you're having tougher conversations. Was there a specific situation that you can think of, or was it mostly just in general, you've been keeping that in mind over the past couple of weeks? I think I just tried to slow down during a really fast process. This month has been insane. I don't know about you, but the last three months have gone by so fast for me. It was crazy. 2020 was super slow. This year was fast and then it just sped up. And so I've been doing everything I can to try to stay grounded 
and remind myself. And especially for me, this is a very busy season for our company. So in doing that, I've been listening to a lot of podcasts. I've been going back to what I know and love most, which is a lot of yoga, meditation, listening to Brene Brown and Glennon Doyle and those reminders that I'm hearing in all these different areas of my life and all the different things that I do to get grounded were really helpful. There wasn't one particular situation. I kind of feel like there's a situation like that that presents itself almost every day, especially when you're leading a team, when you're managing, when you're running your household. There's almost always an opportunity to think about what makes you tick and what hurts and how you can reframe that narrative. And so that has been a lot about a lot of what December has been for me. I love that. I'm also a huge Glennon Doyle fan. And hearing you say that, I don't know if you know, but she, it was kind of low key. She just released a journal. Have you heard of it called Get Untamed? I have. I haven't reviewed it at all, but I saw it on Twitter. I love following her on Twitter because she makes me laugh. And I saw that she released it, but I haven't taken a look at it yet. I feel like that would be really up your alley like right now because it sounds like you're really thinking a lot and maybe that would be a great journal. I mean, she's amazing. I absolutely love her. I haven't gone the journal, but I think it's great to reflect on the people who really help you reconnect with yourself. And I know Glennon Doyle, of course, Brene Brown, people like that do that. So thank you for sharing that. I appreciate it. And I think it's really important. And we try to do that on this show to get entrepreneurs to talk about like being vulnerable and the hard stuff and that this happens every day because I think a lot of the times it can look really shiny on the outside. And so I appreciate you also being vulnerable with us. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a lot of times people say, oh, you do things because you're not scared of them. So it's easier for you. And I'm so fucking scared of them. That's why I do them. So it's so important to like go back to what makes you tick and whether or not what you're actually doing connects with your values and who you are. Absolutely. Well, speaking of values and who you are, I think that is the perfect segue into kind of who you are and who you were as a child. And We like to start on this show. We're obviously going to focus on your 20s, but we do like to have a bit of context about your childhood, what you wanted to be when you grew up. Let's maybe start there. What did you want to be when you were younger? Uh, Yeah, what did you want to be when you grew up? Well, it's so terribly cliche. I wanted to be an Olympic gymnastics champion. And now whenever I hear that from my kids or another child, I like roll my eyes because it's so absurd to think about being like one of the six or seven that get to compete for your country every four years. But I truly wanted to be an Olympic champion. And that was my only goal. I was obsessed as a young child and very involved in gymnastics training for six and even eight hours a day when I started second or third grade. That's unbelievable. I guess second grade, did you, was there a turning point there where you decided I don't want to do this anymore and maybe school picked up or did you carry on the gymnastics throughout middle school and high school? No, I actually carried it on. So that's when I became even more serious. Like that's when I went to school less and did some homeschooling and really embraced at that young age that this is my path. And I couldn't imagine doing anything else. And the more time I spent in gymnastics, the less other doors were open for me. So then I really felt like if I don't succeed at this, I won't succeed at anything. So I didn't actually catch that entrepreneurial bug until much, much later. I love seeing my own daughters and they're already starting their first businesses at six and nine. That wasn't me at all. I was just focused on being a gymnast, the best that I could be. But I would say that that also teaches you a lot of work ethic. Like I'll quickly shout out my sister. She was an amazing, amazing ballerina. And she's not a professional dancer now, but she's learned so many things from that training, from really working so hard at one goal, from really pushing her body. I mean, it's the same with gymnastics. You're pushing your body. You're working really hard to perfect a routine. Have you thought about like how those values maybe have carried through into what you're doing now? Because I think as an entrepreneur, like you've got to be kind of crazy, you know, and like put in eight hours of practice equivalent is an elementary school. You're putting 18, 20 hours now, whatever it is. Have you thought about that? Like what that training did to you now as an entrepreneur? Yeah, I think there are a million pros. I think the ability to focus under high intensity and pressure, pushing yourself beyond what you initially thought you were capable of. There are a million reasons why I think that gymnastics and having that training was really positive and healthy for me. And there's probably a million and one reasons why I wouldn't wish that on any other child. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. I do have to say before we continue, can you tell me what your six and nine-year-old's businesses are? I love that. What are they doing? So my six-year-old's always changing her business ideas. But right now, my nine-year-old, almost 10-year-old Zoe is selling slime. And this week was particularly challenging because there were some kids that were jealous that are spreading rumors about her product being overpriced and goopy. And they've now started their own slime business and they're charging one cent or one quarter. So completely not a sustainable model and they're going to run out of product. But in the meantime, she's learning some really hard lessons and she initially just wanted to switch and start selling something else. But she's kept with it. And it's really exciting to watch her learn everything from marketing to dealing with hostile customers or competition. I can absolutely relate. And it's nice to be able to connect with her on that level. That's so special. And she's got, you know, the best mom to help her with it. You're like, okay, honey, on a much lesser scale, this is how you do it. That's so special. It's fun. I mean, she is so much like her dad, and her dad is completely opposite of what I am. And so a lot of her interests and the things that she's good at are things that like, I just don't connect with at all. So it's nice now, like having something that we both love and enjoy and can talk through and seeing how powerful her voice is. I was afraid, even through my 20s, to ask for help or anyone who I felt could offer me something or had a skill that I didn't have, I put them on a pedestal and was afraid to even like ask for help or connect with them in any way, shape or form. So to see her say, Hey, I really need some help with a logo. I know that X person is good at that. Can you put me in contact with them is so awesome and and rewarding to watch and her. And, you know, we just have to keep doing everything that we can to help her find her voice. Because as you know, being a teen, especially a teen girl is really challenging. So any head start she can get right now, I want to help her with. I love that. And it's, you know, it's so much easier said than done, especially when you're nine to find your voice and to stand up to the bullies and the people that are taking, saying mean things about your slime. I empathize. That's not easy, but I love that you're pushing that and you're encouraging her to speak up. And like you said, it took you a while. I think it takes everyone a while to really find their voice and it's not always easy. And sometimes I think maybe we can find our voice much easier when it's in business, but in relationships, maybe not so much. Or when it comes to relationships, yes, but in business, we struggle. So I think it's also like she might be killing it and, and raising her voice now, but who knows how things will evolve. It's a, it's a work in progress, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for that background. So you wanted to be an Olympic gymnast and then something changed and you went and you studied law in college. Can you walk me through that decision of, I don't know if you want to giving up the Olympic dream. Maybe there was a situation where you didn't make a cut for something. Would you mind talking me a little bit through what led you to not pursue that dream anymore and instead pursue law in college? When I was about 16 at the time, and I think things have changed a little bit, but at the time, 16 was almost over the hill for gymnasts. And so at that point, I had realized that I was just shy of hitting the national team and that the likelihood that I would ever go to the Olympics was pretty slim. And so I started to focus on where I would go to college and whether or not I would compete gymnastics through that university. And then at 17, I broke my back. And so it was scary and it was hard. And I lost my scholarship to the university that I was initially going to go to. And I had only focused on gymnastics up until that point. So to think about life, I mean, I wasn't going to college to further my career and plan my future. I was going to college so that I could compete gymnastics. And now all of a sudden, I was no longer going to go to a division one school I had gained 15, 20 pounds, which as a gymnast is especially challenging because your entire center of balance is off. And things just started to spiral out of control for a little while until I was able to pick things back up and, and get more focused. Oh my goodness. I'm so sorry to hear that. I will say, hopefully hindsight, you can see that that was a wake up call. And I wish it was not something as painful as breaking your back, but Do you look back on that time with gratitude or when you think about that moment, do you feel like you wonder what would have happened if you had gone off to that one college and done gymnastics? Like, do you think your life would have turned out much differently? 
I don't think about that. Honestly, I don't think about what life would have been like had I taken another path. Now, that being said, I certainly have regrets, or at least I had regrets for a very long time. Hitting my 40s is a little bit different. But I think I'm not one of those people to sort of look back and say, what would have happened had I taken path A or path B? No, I, I totally hear you. I think that's probably really healthy. I'm like, I can't relate. I'm always looking back. I'm like, what would have happened if I did this or if I did that? But yeah, I, I hear you. So you decided to go to UCSB. And when you enrolled in UCSB, did you know you were going to study law? And can you tell me a little bit about what led you to go to that school after you obviously weren't going to pursue gymnastics any longer? Yeah. So that was actually the fourth school I enrolled in after high school. So I took a little break. I first off went off to UC Davis. And then once I got to UC Davis, I had this incredible roommate who unfortunately was date raped and it triggered so much in me. Like at that point I had realized what had happened with me because I had spent so much time compartmentalizing gymnastics over here, family over there, my relationship with my coaches in another sort of box. And you alluded to it in the introduction about how I was a witness in a criminal case and a plaintiff in a civil case. And that actually is the time in my life. So my 20s were spent a lot in and out of court because I initially left UC Davis, came back, turned my coaches in who had been wildly abusive, And that sort of started my path in the legal system. And then I jumped around and did a few like junior colleges. I wasn't really focused on academics because I was so embroiled in that legal system, but ultimately decided to go to UCSB because like, why not? It was beautiful and fun. My brother had gone there. I knew Santa Barbara having grown up close by in Los Angeles. And I chose law and society, not necessarily because I wanted to be a lawyer at that point. I still wasn't certain about that, but because it was such an interdisciplinary major and I really wanted the opportunity to study as much as I could. I was excited about sociology and about science and I wanted the opportunity to do that while still graduating in a reasonable amount of time. Absolutely. I'm sorry to hear about that. I've obviously did a little bit of research on that background and that you had that experience at UC Davis that sort of like reminded you of what had happened and that you decided to come back and and turn them in. I can imagine that was a, a really challenging time. Yes, it was especially challenging. At the time I was turning them in, not for me, because my self-worth was definitely at an all-time low. I was more concerned about the young girls that continued to train and be controlled and abused by these coaches. And so the 20s were sort of, for me, a second adolescence in a lot of ways because I lost a childhood. And so I spent a lot of time sort of playing hard and exploring things about me and interests and things that you probably see most teens do, but I didn't get a chance to until I hit my 20s. So I think I spent a lot of time in my 30s sort of regretting my 20s. Why did I spend so much time playing, experimenting with drugs and alcohol, like not really focused on school, more about just getting through But now looking back, like all of that was part of my journey. Absolutely. And, you know, obviously when you experience like a certain form of trauma, there are things that do happen as you sort through that. And like you said, if you were going in and out of the courts throughout your 20s, that is not an easy situation, you know? And even if you were, I'm sure, putting on a brave face, like that can be really, really difficult and really affect self-esteem. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, even though I sort of attain justice in that traditional sense of the word, I was really, really lucky. Like he went to prison, not for a long time, but he went to prison and I won the civil case. So I attained justice in that traditional sense of the word. So like outwardly, it looked like, hey, she's got her life together. Things are looking up for her. All these great things are happening. But really inside, I was really struggling because the only way to win was to navigate this legal system that thrives on explaining to the world how damaged you are. The only way to get ahead 
in both the criminal and the civil system was to say like, this is what happened and here's how damaged you are and here's how hard your life is going to be going forward. So whether it's like experts or the court or your lawyer making that case, hearing that over and over again is awful. And then on the other side of things, the job of the other attorney is to do whatever they can to tell you how you're, why you're wrong and why you're lying or why, what your motivations are. And so like your integrity is constantly being challenged and they're constantly watching you and watching you and waiting to see if you'll make a mistake that they could use in court. So it, it really did take over a lot of my early twenties for sure. You know, thank you for sharing that. I I really have never heard it explained that way. And it's so powerful to hear you say that the way that we've set up the legal system that forces you to share how damaged and how walk through detail by detail what happened can be so painful. And like, is that really the best way to get to the truth? Because it's really, really hurting the people that had the experience. So thank you for sharing that. I think you explained it in such an eloquent way. And again, I, you know, apologies for that. But, you know, obviously you're now, and we'll get to it, but you're, you know, serving as a lawyer and entrepreneur and helping a lot of people through their traumatic experiences too, which we'll get to eventually. So you did come out on top and you're doing amazing work now. So I know one thing I did want to ask you about is, is during those years in your twenties, I know that you did a lot of volunteer work and you had mentioned that, you know, unfortunately your roommate had been date raped. I know you were volunteering at the Santa Barbara Rape Crisis Center. You also volunteered at Break the Cycle, focused on ending relationship violence for young people. Can you tell me a little bit more about what drew you to the nonprofit space? I think from my experience, I don't see that many people in their 20s volunteering at nonprofits. It typically tends to be like high schoolers or maybe like much older when you like have a little bit more time. So I think that that's really special. Can you tell me a little bit more about those experiences and how you found them and how you like them? So for clarification, Break the Cycle, which was the company that I think it, I'm sure they're still doing amazing work today that They helped educate teens on teen dating violence. And then they actually got lawyers from big firms to do pro bono work to represent kids that were in violent situations. So that job was actually my first big job out of college before law school. And it was a paid job. Before that, I did volunteer at several nonprofits from legal aid all the way to the Rape Crisis Center in Santa Barbara. That was one of like five jobs that I had. So I was privileged enough to have the ability to make some good money, do gymnastics coaching and doing choreography so that I could volunteer. And the Rape Crisis Center was like the perfect place for me to be because up until that point, I had really learned how to thrive in chaos and crisis. So being super busy was a trauma response for me. And while I got to do good and I learned a lot about myself and helped a lot of people, it was also very natural for me. I felt really comfortable in that. But my job with the Rape Crisis Center was especially intense because what I was doing was I was on call and If somebody called the police while we were in Santa Barbara on a particular night that I was on call and they had been raped, I was the one to go down and advocate for that victim and be with them while the police interviewed them, be with them for their medical exam, follow them through afterwards to help make sure that they got the resources that they needed and had the right people on their side and to talk to. So while it was incredibly rewarding and more natural for me, it certainly burned out on that pretty quickly. Then I finished up college. I took that job with Break the Cycle. And there I was a volunteer coordinator. So I was like this young gal right out of college. And I was coordinating these big, fancy, big firm lawyers to help them, they all had this requirement to do a certain amount of pro bono free time. And this is the organization that they had chosen. So I had to like coordinate them and get them excited and involved in the organization so that they could help our our customers. Amazing. Yeah, that sounds like some amazing opportunities. And that's, I sound like, sounds like the Santa Barbara Rape Crisis Center was clearly a lot, but I, you know, it's nice you're able to balance that a little bit with like gymnastics teaching and other things that maybe were a little bit lighter. Oh, believe me, I had plenty of fun in my 20s too. Like I, I did this really intense stuff, but I also had a lot, a lot of fun. Good, good. That's important. So 
obviously as a volunteer coordinator at Break the Cycle, you were working with a lot of lawyers, like you said, and you had majored in law at UCSB. At this point, were you still like, I have no clue. I just want to keep figuring out my passions and taking it day by day. Or were you thinking like, I'm going to go to law school and I'm going to be a lawyer? At what point did that change? And because of course you ended up going to law school. So I'm curious about that moment when you realized you wanted to pursue that path. The moment that I wanted to pursue the path was when the legal cases that I was involved in finally ended. And I realized that this was the most complicated, demoralizing experience of my life. I never wanted anyone to feel the same way that I did going through that process. And so at that point, I knew I wanted to be a lawyer. I knew that I somehow wanted to make the system better. I didn't know what that was going to look like yet. And so it made a lot of sense for me to work at Break the Cycle so that I would have access to lawyers and lobbyists and legislators. It was a really exciting time for that organization and for feminist rights in general. So it was super exciting. I think I look back on Break the Cycle and I learned so much and I was paid so little. And I had the opportunity to advocate for myself. Like that could have been this opportunity. I had two amazing women as bosses who were feminists, who were lawyers, who wanted to do good in this world. And I could have used that as an opportunity to say, hey, this isn't working for me. I can't make my rent. I need some help here. But instead, it was like, you know, that sort of all or nothing that I had always experienced in my life. I was like, they're taking advantage of me. And I just quit, like on the spot, quit. And that is probably, if I could think of one regret I have in my 20s, it was definitely that moment because I don't think they were intentionally trying to take advantage of me. And I could have used this as a learning opportunity. And instead I just like jetted. But that being said, I then took the LSAT and and went to law school. Amazing. And so are you saying with Break the Cycle, when you decided to quit, you were thinking like, I'm not getting paid enough for this and I want to make more money. What was like the deeper reason for the quitting? Because, or were you just like, I need to study for the LSAT and you know, I don't have time for this anymore. I think at that point, I was really struggling with self-worth. I was really struggling with the fact that I had spent all those years being taken advantage of. I really felt like the victim instead of a survivor. I didn't feel empowered. I felt like I was always fighting just to like be heard. And so I quit because at that point in my life, I felt like if I'm not being valued, if somebody's taking advantage of me, I sort of equated it all to like the experience I had when I was younger. There are good people and there are bad people. And this is a bad situation. I didn't yet have the tools to be able to say, hey, there's more to the story. So like as an example, I was working all hours of the day or night. No one ever asked me to do that. No one ever asked me to do that, but I'm a perfectionist. I like to succeed. And so that's exactly what I was doing. So here I was suffering in silence. I wasn't telling them, here's what's happening. I could really use some help. Or what can you help me prioritize so that I don't work 80 hours a week? Instead, I was internalizing that and making it about somebody is doing something bad to me. And when someone does something bad to me, I need to get out of that situation fast. Otherwise, I'm going to end up in a prolonged abusive situation like I had as a child. So it was really my inner child sort of kicking in and trying to protect me. I just didn't have the skills that I needed at that time to be able to advocate and to learn from that experience. It's interesting to hear you talk about how this like black and white mindset carried throughout a lot of what you were doing. And I'm sure a lot of it was so subconscious, like because you had this one experience, then as you went into your career, which you would you think, you know, on a piece of paper that seems very different than the legal case you were fighting from your childhood, you were still experiencing that like all or nothing black or white mindset of like, if someone isn't giving me exactly what I need, then it might be this like horrible, negative, terrible, they are out to get me situation. Yes, that's exactly it. And I was also deeply terrified that I would fail. I had already felt like I failed by not making the Olympics, right? By not being on that Olympic team. And so I gave myself no grace at all to be human. There, you weren't allowed to make mistakes in my mind. Like you either did something, again, not just all or nothing with people, but all or nothing with myself. Like I either could 100% kill it 
or I shouldn't be doing it at all. Yeah. And it's like you said, that's like the attitude of someone who could be an Olympic gymnast. Honestly, it's like that all or nothing, put everything into it. And that's probably in some ways, just like who you are as a person. And I'm sure there, this experience, of course, is like from your childhood impacts it. But it sounds like you have this like go-getter attitude that like nothing will stop you at all costs. And you care so much about the things you put your time and energy into. And sometimes that can be a good thing, you know, especially if you're an entrepreneur, right? Yes, right. It's not black and white. Right. Yeah, right. It's, there's nuance. And, and obviously, you know, if you want to build a company, you have to kind of have that like crazy work hard and be passionate about something. So I appreciate you explaining that. And I think it makes a bunch of sense. Like even just being in your 20s, like you don't have the hindsight. And I, I'm not speaking from experience. You know, I'm like, I don't know. But sometimes, you know, I think when you get older, you you look back and you see things a little differently. So it's interesting to hear you say that. So you go off to law school and I know you went to the University of San Francisco. So could you tell me a little bit about your time in law school and how did you like it? And at that point, were you starting to really clarify what kind of law you were interested in? Well, I clarified that I was really interested in public interest. Like that's where I had spent a lot of my 20s. And I really thought that my path at the time was to try to change the system, not help people navigate through it, but actually change it. And then I got some great internships and jobs during law school in the public interest sector. And then I graduated and I was shocked how competitive it was just to get a job at your local legal aid, unless you were a Stanford or a Harvard or Columbia or even Cal Berkeley graduate, you weren't going to get those jobs. And so like, again, it was like, what? I worked so hard through law school and I did all the right things and I'm not going to get one of these jobs. So what do I do next? Where do I head when that was kind of all I knew? That's so fascinating. You would think it would be the opposite. That like if you go to a school that was very expensive and very prestigious, you're gunning for the biggest big law jobs. Would you mind explaining to me a little bit more about like why you think those top Ivy League graduates were gunning for the more public interest law jobs? I think it's a couple different things. So one is there are definitely student loan forgiveness regulations out there that if you under certain circumstances, if you take a public interest job out of law school, your loans can be forgiven. And loans for law school are absolutely insane. People are spending hundreds, dollars $100,000, $200,000. And so I think that's one reason, right? If you stayed in public interest for a certain period of time, some or all of your loans could be forgiven. But I think there are actually a lot of people that want to go into public interest, that want to go into regulation or legislature or, you know, that kind of thing. And so they're just very competitive because there's very few job openings available. You'd think that anyone would want to change the system. (laughs) It's like, I'd like to think there's so many job opportunities for that, but I hear you. I think it's really hard to do. And I think that's also the mindset of like, I hear you say, I wanted to change the system versus helping people navigate it. I think that's a lot of like being in your 20s and going into a field and being like, I'm going to change the way this whole thing works. And then you're like, wait a sec, it's a lot more complicated than I realized. And I need to just be a participant and make it the best it can be. But the system is hard to change. I don't think I realized just how hard the system would be to change at that point. Like at that point, I was still feeling very idealistic. Like I was surrounded by academics and, you know, surrounded by all these people doing good work and nonprofits and all these great groups that I was a part of. So I think at that point in my life, I still felt like changing the system would be something that I could do, that I could partake in, that I could make a difference in. I think that's kind of what college and graduate school is for, though. Like, I think it's meant to kind of like inspire the young people, even if they're super naive and it's not possible. Like, I found like a lot of people, the classes you take and the people you learn from that come and speak, it's about going out there and changing the world and you have more power than you think. And I think that's what they're meant to do, almost like starting you off on a high. And then so (laughs) when you go out in the real world, like it's, it kind of wakes you up, but hopefully some of that college or grad school enthusiasm still remains. I don't know, but I feel like that's what they do. Like they kind of jazz you up for something that maybe isn't as realistic. Well, and I think that's honored more now. I mean, I could say as a generation Xer that when we went out into the workforce, 
it was all about if you were in your seat before everyone else got to work and if you stayed in your seat until after everyone left. Like that was what was rewarded. And if you worked hard enough to make yourself ultimately indispensable, then you could consider yourself in line to a partnership or to a promotion. It's very different now in a wonderful way. Like now we're really going out there and we're rewarding people for their value system, for their risk tolerance, for their passions. And we're valuing that in the workplace in a way that we never have before. And certainly not what I experienced when I was in my 20s. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a great point. Like the priorities are shifting. And so your experience then is maybe a little bit different than it would be now. Okay, so... Like you said, you thought public interest, you graduate, and then unfortunately, not many spots available. And so what was your next job after that? And what sector was it in? So I thought at the time that being a good lawyer meant being able to advocate in court, being able to litigate and win. So my goal at that point became finding a job that right out of law school that would immediately allow me to go to court and fight for the best outcome for my clients. So that's exactly what I did. I found a job in a small law firm. It was in family law. I actually didn't expect to go into family law. I was open to other areas of law. Turned out that family law was the perfect spot for me to be because it really combined my interest and excitement in the law with my wanting sort of social work mentality, wanting to help people that are going through hard times and going through crisis emerge in a better place. So I became a family law attorney and I litigated hundreds, if not thousands of cases. I took every case that walked in the door initially. So there are some really wild stories we had time to go into. I would love to share. I was shot at. I had a witness jump over the witness stand and come attack me. Oh my gosh, so many good stories. At one point, I had a case where... My client did not want to pay spousal support because his said that he found out that his wife was this high-priced escort. And if she's making all this money, then he shouldn't have to pay her. And so I had to then go out and prove that the escort in the like naked picture on the website was actually the wife. And we went to trial on that case and it was wildly exciting. It was my first big trial and we won, but it wasn't easy and we had to be super creative. And at first I absolutely loved it, right? I loved being able to expose people who I felt were doing bad things. I loved being able to help clients who had a clear agenda. They wanted to win. And I was able to, for many years, get them the result that they wanted. It wasn't until, oh gosh, 10 years into practicing law that I started to enjoy relationship more, thinking about getting married, thinking about having kids and started to sort of take a step back and look at how is this affecting people? How is the legal system, this sort of win-lose mentality affecting people at their core and their families? And it really was a powerful moment for me because I connected back to my why, my mission, my purpose, why I went to law school to help people navigate hard times with the least amount of collateral damage possible and set them up for their next best chapter. And I wasn't really doing that. My clients were going into debt, paying legal fees. My clients were having miserable post-divorce co-parenting experiences because of the tension and the conflict and the lawsuits, I realized that the type of people that were hiring me were not focused on what's best for their families. They were focused on revenge or other things that are toxic and destroy families. So it was a really powerful moment for me to say, wow, I'm glad I got this experience. I really needed to understand the legal system and how to be a lawyer, but this is not where I want to be. That's so fascinating to hear that you found such fulfillment. And then over time, like all things, things do change. Was there a specific moment or a specific case that made you have that realization? Or do you think it was maybe just like maturity and getting older? And like you said, wanting relationships, wanting family, and maybe thinking about things from a more macro lens? 
There were a lot of things happening at the time. I mean, there was one case in particular, a move away case where my client sought to move her children with her to another state. We won that case. And I remember looking over at the other parents right after that case. And just, it was such a powerful moment for me because we had to make him bad to win the case, right? Not lie, but we had to bring out and throw him under the bus and bring out all the qualities and traits that maybe he had failed at parenting wise until that point. But it was really clear to me throughout this lawsuit and then right afterwards looking at him that, you know, sure, like he was flawed and he had not been a perfect parent, but that his kids were everything and that his priorities had shifted and that his wife moving with the children across the country was going to destroy his life and likely be really for their kids as well. So I think that. I mean, that was incredibly powerful. And that's when I started to sort of shift my practice a little bit and do less litigation and more mediation, more coaching, more negotiation work, less about litigation. But it still didn't feel like enough. It really didn't. Like, it felt like I was still this complicit participant in a system that was routing people through war and that I could do better. I can imagine too, you know, a lot of the times people inflict harm, whether it's on the world or it's on other people or other systems, and they don't actually get to look them in the eye. You know what I mean? And not that you were necessarily inflicting harm, but like you guys were on opposite sides of a court case that got intense. And I think something that's unfortunate about law specifically is sometimes, like you said, with litigation, you get to see the actual person and you get to put like a face to the name. And I think that that probably can really like wear on you, you know, because you hear all the time, you know, like corporations that are putting crazy emissions into the atmosphere and all these things that they're doing. Maybe they don't really see the immediate effects. There's no face. But I think like to imagine that you are looking right at someone and like, you know, that you were part of that. I can see how that would be difficult. I definitely I appreciate you explaining that because I think it makes it clear kind of how you, you know, pivoted next and and with time decided to start a business that was definitely democratizing a lot of the legal system and making things a lot easier and better for people rather than like more challenging and more painful. What I learned at that moment or very soon after was like changing the system is going to take a lot of time. Like this is a system that has been in place for hundreds of years and lawyers regulate themselves unlike any other industry. So to change the system was going to take time, energy, and a lot more than just me. But what I could start to do is change the narrative around divorce and help people to opt out of the system altogether where possible because that system is just wildly inefficient. It's so expensive. It breeds fear and distrust and toxicity. And instead of like fostering community and self-empowerment, we really focus so much of our time on making the other person bad or wrong. And by the time you make the decision to divorce, which is often two to five years after contemplating divorce the first time, it doesn't have to be about fighting anymore. Like that cannot be what we put first and foremost. Nobody wants a long, messy, expensive ordeal. We really need to focus on like, what can we do to help people have more of a win-win situation? That zero-sum game that law provides in most areas might be fine, but certainly not in the family law context when you have real people that are just trying to get through a really challenging time. Yeah, that's such a great point. You know, even hearing you say that, like, I can only really think of one divorced couple that I know of that is still kind to each other and still happy. And I think that's really sad. And sometimes maybe it's not even about the people. It's more so just the system that makes them that way. And so to hear that you guys are really changing that is very, very exciting. So can you tell everyone a little bit more about Hello Divorce? Hopefully, you know, our 20-somethings are not needing to get a divorce. But I do think, you know, 20-somethings are definitely thinking about marriage and kind of going into it with the best intention. So can you just tell us a little bit more about why you started Hello Divorce and what you guys do? Well, nobody gets married thinking that they'll get divorced. I think 20-somethings these days, they think about it a little bit more, right? Because prenups are not as much the devil as they once were. Like at one point, 
we talked about and expected that a prenup would only occur with like that wealthy older man marrying that younger woman. Now we're seeing it across all genders, across all ages, across all socioeconomic status. People are choosing the life that they want and opting out of the financial rules that the state puts in front of them in that marital contract. But it wasn't always that way. Nobody gets married thinking they're going to get divorced, but it happens. And we focus so much on that legal definition of divorce, like dissolving a marriage by court instead of what it truly is. And so much of that is cultural, but a lot of that is the legal system too. What it really is, is this reclamation of independence and hope, like an opportunity to really live in the moment, live with intention, cultivate joy, and not just settle for the sake of settling. In that vein, you know, Hello Divorce is really wants everyone to know that the system is the villain. The system that pits people against each other, spouse against spouse, with that initial paperwork even saying you're being sued with a lawsuit. The initial paperwork that really makes people scared and breeds distrust. We reject that. And our goal with Hello Divorce is to provide a friendlier, easier, affordable pathway to divorce, to focus less on the stuff where why the relationship went wrong and all the pain around that and more about how can we set each of you up for that next chapter. So while we provide information and resources on all the stuff in the divorce ecosystem, all the things that you need to know, our biggest focus up until this point has really been that legal product because every single person who gets divorced has to navigate the legal system. And so our goal is to make that piece as easy and efficient and transparent as possible. And one of the biggest reasons for that is because the most predominant feeling that most people have when they go through divorce is fear. And fear leads to overwhelm and it leads to making really irrational decisions. When we're scared, we do things like lawyer up with the most aggressive attorney in town. And lawyers are really good at motivating by fear. Hey, if you don't hire me, X, Y, and Z might happen. So our goal is education first, to be able to share with you exactly what the process is going to look like, to help people develop an action plan, to break it into a three-step process, and to make the technology piece as easy as possible so that you can sort of do it on your own time and involve your spouse as much or as little as the two of you want. And we even bring in experts like mediators to help if there's some conflict along the way, because conflict is inevitable. That's going to happen. And our goal is to say, okay, you were able to do step one and step two. That last step is getting to an agreement. Let's see how we can help you do that without it turning into an all-out war. I love that. You're fixing the system in the way that you can now with this, with all this divorce step. I think that's so fascinating. And I love that you guys are taking a really optimistic approach. I, I have a question. Correct me if I'm wrong, but when you get a divorce, let's say, you know, person A has a lawyer and person B has a lawyer. And then there isn't really like this neutral third party that's trying to find like the best outcome. From my understanding, it's really just sort of like they're going at it and then you know, obviously the courts make the final decision. Do you guys also see yourself as sort of this like third party, like you said, kind of mediator that isn't maybe being paid an extreme amount of money by one side or the other? You really just like want the best outcome for the family and the divorce. Is that something that you've seen too? Yes, absolutely. I think most important to us is that people are paying for what they need when they need it. And the traditional way of handling divorces, we each lawyer up. We pay on average $20,000 per person. So that means that most people are priced out of hiring a lawyer altogether. And we also are told that the only way to protect our rights and the only way to have peace of mind is to hire a lawyer. And that's simply not the case, right? So our goal is if you need a lawyer to review your documents or maybe talk to you about strategy, that's great. We have one available to you. If you need a mediator to help you guys come to an agreement that feels good and feels fair, we have that as well. But the lawyer is not the center of the case. You are. And 
there's a lot that goes into divorce because you're unwinding years, sometimes two, five, 10, 20 years of a lifetime together. You know, there's a lot that goes into it. And most of that actually is not legal. Lawyers just have a monopoly on it. And again, partly because of the system, but more so because of the regulations that are in place, which protect lawyers and make it really impossible or very, very challenging for anyone who isn't a lawyer to help people through the divorce space. It's so fascinating here you talk about this because I feel like we don't ever talk about divorce and like how the system is set up to make it worse and how lawyers maybe have a bit of a monopoly on it because they're the ones that are kind of handling everything, but there are so many facets to it. And I think it's really interesting. Well, I appreciate you explaining it to all of us. And for those of you who know someone who may be getting a divorce, you know, unfortunately may need a divorce at some point, I'm sure we'll, you know, definitely be using that platform. Well, I know we're, we're coming close to time. I do want to ask you our final question. We ask this to all of our guests who come on the show and it's the purpose of our show. We obviously have shared so many wonderful gems of wisdom throughout this conversation But if you had to narrow it down to just one thing that you could say to every 20-something in the world, what is that one piece of advice that you would give them? I think we're all amateurs. Like you don't have to have it all figured out. And that all the little small things that we do really, truly do add up. So sometimes we're looking for that next big thing. And we feel like that's where we get meaning and that's what's important. But really all the little small things that we do to figure out who we are, what our values are, how we can maximize our experience and our impact in the world, all of those little things add up. And so to trust that and just remember to be human. You know, like we talked about at the very beginning, like give yourself the grace to be human because nothing is perfect. And if you have those expectations of yourself, you're just really setting yourself up for failure. I love that advice. That's so good. And even hearing you talk about like appreciating the small steps you're taking towards like becoming who you're meant to be. That's also a very like nuanced and gray way of looking at it. It's not like you have to go jump to a new job or go have this crazy life-changing experience. Like all the little things do add up. And it sounds like, you know, maybe your mindset has changed a little bit since your 20s, but all your experiences, like you said, even the all or nothing ones in your 20s have led to who you are now, which is really cool to hear. Well, Erin, I can't thank you enough for chatting with us. This has been so awesome and you're such a badass. And I also just want to take a moment and just appreciate your like authenticity and vulnerability with us. I know it's not easy to talk about trauma and difficult things, but it's obviously such a crucial part of your story. And so I just wanted to before we wrap up, just thank you for that because I know that everyone's going to really appreciate and take a lot from that. So thank you so much. Can you please let everyone know where they can follow you on social media and then also where they can learn more about Hello Divorce if they are interested or want to share with people they know? Yeah, absolutely. So it's hellodivorce.com and our handles are at Hello Divorce across all social media platforms. And you can find me at LinkedIn at Erin Levine. Perfect. I love it. Also, it's a great name. It's a very cheery way of looking at divorce. It's like, hello, you're not scary. All right. Well, if you guys enjoyed this conversation, please give us a follow over at Dear 20 Something on Instagram and subscribe, rate, review anywhere you get podcasts. Thanks, everyone. Have a great night, Erin. Thanks, Erica. Mm-hmm.